On Good Friday, 1,600 years ago, Bishop Ambrose ascended his pulpit in the Cathedral of Milan. This is the same Ambrose who baptized St. Augustine. And to the thronging crowd gathered in the cathedral that evening, he spoke these words. I find it impossible to speak to you today. The events of Good Friday are too great for human words. Why should I speak while my Savior is silent and dies? When I compare the weakness of my words and thoughts with the seven short sentences that Jesus spoke from the cross that often form worship of Christians around the world this night, I too am tempted to say, why should I speak? Let's pray. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. We've come tonight to watch a man die. Because we love him, our watching is hard. We hang upon his last words and we carry them in remembering hearts. Remembering hearts. Tonight, unlike last night when our remembering was by hearing and by visualizing, and by embodying in action. Tonight, we remember in words and imagination, with remembering hearts, and we pray that his words might reshape our affections. What does the one say who is now dying for the sin of the world? His first words from the cross are, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. A dying Jesus points to the reason for his death. He reaches back to a garden in the cool of the day, to a promise made in that garden. I will put enmity between you and the woman, the Lord spoke to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The gospel in Genesis 3. And now here on a cross, we see the result of that promise. God working out his plan. The plan conceived in a garden, worked out in a manger, then in another garden, and now 
on a cross. God coming to the hearts of men and women, calling us by name and bringing us the greatest treasure the heart of God can give, forgiveness of our sins and peace with him. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, Christ, the innocent Son of God, is stretched in painful agony on an uplifted cross. What place is there for love and forgiveness now? And yet that's precisely what he says. That's what he prays. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Tom Wright tells of a lecture at Lambeth Palace a number of years ago when Jonathan Sachs, the former great rabbi, chief rabbi of England, came to speak, and everyone was eager to hear him. They'd heard him on podcasts, they'd read his essays, but they'd never heard him live. And now he spoke eloquently and asked for questions. And one person stood up and said to the rabbi, Tell us about Jesus. And everyone held their breath. What would he say? He went right right to Luke 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus echoing what the high priest says on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where Jesus intercedes for muddled and sinful Israel. And Jonathan Sachs said that evening, Jesus was never more thoroughly Jewish than at that moment, praying for those around, praying for forgiveness, pleading ignorance of the people as the particular reason for his prayer. But, with all due respect. When you look at the words of the liturgy for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, you find these words, repentance will turn aside the severe decree. But that's where we differ. Human repentance is not powerful enough or thorough enough or dependable enough to deliver us from sin. Only the incursion of God's irresistible grace will suffice to present us from self-destruction. Paul says it simply. For by grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. Remember the Jesus of this past Sunday entering Jerusalem triumphantly and then cleansing the temple, casting judgment on the whole religious system and then hauled off in trial before the high priest and then ultimately, as we heard tonight, before Pilate where he is condemned. That Jesus believed it was part of his role to embody the task that once belonged to the temple and simultaneously to be Israel's priest. He himself, in his body, would be the place where and the means by which God would meet with his people in grace and forgiveness. How does God normally forgive sins in Israel? Through the temple, 
in sacrifices. Now Jesus is claiming that God is doing up close and personal through him something that you'd normally expect to happen at the temple. Now it happens on the cross. Look in your mind's eye at what Jesus does from the cross. If anyone had the right not to forgive, it was Jesus. If anyone had the right to react in anger, it was our Lord. There was no remorse from the crowd that shouted, Crucify him. No remorse from the soldiers who nailed him to the cross. Nonetheless, Jesus forgives them. He prays for them. Father, forgive them. So who's them? The leaders of his own people, frightened and cowering? Yes. Pilate, wringing his hands, now dirty and stained with guilt? Yes. Is it the soldiers who whipped him mercilessly, who drove nails into his feet and wrists, cast a spear into his side? Yes. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. But it's also us. We were there. We nailed him to the tree. It's our sin, yours and mine, that put him there. And in all of our shame and guilt, nonetheless, he prays for you and me. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Isn't that often the way it is with sin? It gets started in our lives because we're not thinking clearly, because we're clueless. And for clueless ones like us, he prays, Father, forgive them. Some people have understood that. Maybe you saw the film Dead Man Walking or read the memoir of Sister Helen Prejean. She wrote this wonderful sentence, people are more than the worst thing they've ever done in their lives. They're more than a single act. Jesus doesn't just see executioners and cowardly leaders. He doesn't just see sinful you and me. Sees people making horrible decisions, maybe even forced to do so. He sees them and loves them. He sees their hearts and forgives them. And we who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are being made more and more like him, 
surely that has to mean that we begin to see others as he saw them. This I know. You'll never lock eyes with another person for whom Jesus didn't die. So how to pray this prayer? How to live out this forgiveness? True forgiveness is a gift from God. I'll own it. I imagine you will too. There are lots of times I don't desire to forgive. And can't. Sometimes I have the desire to desire. God can use even that. Here's the only true answer to the question, how are you supposed to forgive like Jesus? The answer is, you can't. You know something's gone terribly wrong. You know that we're responsible. You know that something must be done about it. You know that you and I can't do it. But God can. Forgiveness costs. Jesus dies. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their sins against them. That's not a, an accountant's trick. That's not merely kindly overlooking That's the Son of God taking it all upon himself. Taking it with him to the grave. You and I look at ourselves and we see the terrible reality of sin. We look around us in the world, we can't miss it. It's clear, it's definite. And there are lots of things we can do about sin. We can be sorry for it. We can weep over it. We talked about that last Sunday. We can regret it. We can offer reparation to those we've hurt. But there's one thing we can't do. We cannot forgive it. Only God can do that. So hear again his voice. Father, forgive them. I wonder what you brought into church with you tonight. Maybe memories that bless, maybe memories that burn. At the cross of Jesus, those burning memories can be washed away. Tears can be dried. Crushing pain can be relieved. When I was a little boy, we knelt every Sunday in church. Usually I was by my father. And every Sunday, we said these words. I confess that I, a poor, miserable sinner, and the prayer of confession went on from there. 
That phrase has been removed from most modern prayer books because it was thought to be off-putting. And that's probably true of many churchgoers today who didn't grow up with the phrase. If they, if they heard it now, if we, if we prayed that tonight, you'd maybe be baffled or repelled by such language. The underlying dynamic here is that we can't rejoice to think of ourselves as sinful, let alone miserable offenders, unless we're already claimed by the divine light of the gospel. That's why people could, in days past, pray about themselves as miserable offenders or sinners with joy. There's no way to help people to the knowledge of sin except to offer the news of God's, here's a wonderful word, God's prevenient grace, grace that precedes, grace that comes before. When that grace comes to us, it overcomes our sin through the cross of Christ. And it's with a sense of lightheartedness that we come before the mercy seat of God. But you can't understand that until the light of grace dawns upon you. So as you hear again tonight... Jesus' gracious words from the cross, Father, forgive them. And when by grace you believe those words, I pray that your response will be to acknowledge freely your brokenness and to joyfully confess your sins. Because he wants to bury your painful past. He wants you to experience the miracle of forgiveness, where your broken heart is healed and your relationship with God is restored. And he wants you to be free to forgive others. You have to have been struck as I have been by those moments of radical forgiveness that come out of the blue. Men and women forgiving people responsible for horrific crimes committed against them, or more typically against members of their families. In October 2006, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 10 schoolgirls were killed by Charles Roberts. That same day, the grandfather of one of those girls expressed his forgiveness for Charles Roberts. In short order, other members of the families of the deceased little girls visited the Roberts family. In June 2015, in Charleston, South Carolina, I'm sure some of you saw it or read about it, as Dylan Roof sat in a detention center Video feeds were piped into his cell where he listened to Nadine Collier, the daughter of one of the victims, Ethel Lance, who stood in court and said, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But if God forgives you, I forgive you. He heard a relative of Myra Thompson say, 
I would just like him to know that to say the same thing that was just said, I forgive him and my family forgives him. But we would like him to take this opportunity to repent, repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Jesus Christ, so that he can change you and change your way. So no matter what happens to you, you'll be okay. Haven't you always wrestled with how to forgive people who show no remorse? Did you ever hear anybody tell you, well, they have to feel sorry for their sins before you can forgive them? In the ancient liturgy, at the Lord's Supper, Christians have for centuries prayed, O Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. If that's true, that the Lamb of God does just that, then who are we to take a person's sin and freeze it and continue to punish him or her forever? Look what happens when a woman whose sister has been murdered writes the convicted killer because she realizes one day she forgot to tell him that she'd forgiven him for killing her sister. Imagine. And that forgiveness expressed now in a letter reached him in his cell and freed him to be honest and remorseful, to confess his sin and ask forgiveness. The more common story reports another kind of reaction. Every time there's an execution, you hear this. Interviews with bereaved family members or friends. I want you to suffer. I hope you rot. I hope he fries. But we are people who pray every week on earth as in heaven. Forgiveness Forgiveness even of the remorseless is where heaven and earth meet. So get real. I know that some of you have experienced long years of resentment. Some of you have been cheated on. Some betrayed by friends. Others defrauded by partners, exiled by enemies. The only thing to do for those who gather at the foot of the cross is to forgive. It's the only thing that frees us and those who've wronged us. Remember, remember, hear this, see this, feel this. Jesus prayed for you and freed you to forgive. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.